praising our Savior all the day long. Make no mistake about it. That is why we gather on Sunday mornings. Uh, that is why we gather during the week is to praise our Savior and to put a name to that, to praise Jesus, our Savior. Uh, you'd be hard pressed to come here and not see us or hear us proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ. That is, he is the goal. He's the goal of the scriptures. He's the goal of our lives. Uh, he is the message that we proclaim. Uh, he is our all. Is he your all? Is Christ just everything to you? Just wanted to make sure I wasn't by myself. Amen. Good morning to you. It is so good to be back. I deeply, deeply, deeply missed you guys. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I've been out of the country for the last uh, last 10 days. I was away in Israel and uh, literally up and down Israel. We were spent most of our time in Jerusalem and spent time in Bethlehem and in Nazareth and in Tel Aviv. And I'm just I'm glad to be back home, back on American soil. But I had an amazing, amazing time. And, and I and honestly just feel refreshed and encouraged. And I'm still processing so many conversations and processing so many of the sites. And uh, you were on my mind. If I'm honest with you, I was thinking about you guys. You, I was praying for you guys. My journal is filled with some of the conversations we had before I left. And uh, the Lord was just bringing you guys up before me as I was praying. Um, and so I'm glad to see your faces here again this morning. You know, one of the things I didn't expect when I went to Israel was, you know, when I read the scriptures, it, I realize how profitable they are for spiritual life. I realize how profitable it is for our own spiritual growth um, and even for theology. But one of the things I didn't expect, uh, I did expect it, but I, I didn't realize how accurate the scriptures are historically. I mean, I literally walked around the streets of Israel with my Bible in my hand and could point out places that was in the scriptures written over 2000 years ago. Uh, in fact, archaeologists in uh, in Israel, when they study ancient Jerusalem, they study it with a shovel in one hand and with a Bible in another hand because they realize that as they're digging and as they're looking, they, the scriptures are accurate. And I'd love to, before we actually jump into the text, I'd love to, uh, to, to just walk you guys through a little bit. I can't, if you follow me on social media at all, media at all I've been posting pictures, but I'd love to just share some of the places, all of these pictures I took, and I love to share with the exception of one. Uh, I love to share some of the places I've uh, walked the last 10 days. This is a picture of all of Jerusalem. I was literally sitting on the Mount of Olives. This here is the Mount of Olives. Uh, it's a grave site um, where Orthodox Jews believe that the dead in Christ will rise first. So they think you get buried there. That's prime. That's a prime location to get in the resurrection first. But anyway, I'm on the Mount of Olives, which is what Jesus would have seen as he was walking down or really riding down on the donkey into Jerusalem on his triumphal entry. This is what Jesus would have seen. And the interesting thing about Jerusalem is, you know, when you read it in the scriptures and you read places like Psalm 125, where David would have wrote that uh, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. And you're, when I read that and sat in the middle of Jerusalem and looked around and literally saw mountains all around, you realize how uh, historically accurate the scriptures are. And so this is a, a good picture of the sunset as don't let that picture fool you. It was freezing cold outside. Uh, but this is a great picture of the sunset. Go to the next one. I got a, just a couple I wanted to share with you guys. This is a picture of me walking into the tomb. I don't know if you guys remember, I, I said to you, if I went in the tomb and Jesus' body was there, I, I'd never preach again. 
I, and I mean that seriously. I, we'd be preaching in vain if he's still dead. But the reality is I walked into that tomb and I came out uh, not surprised that he was not there. Like Jesus wasn't chilling going, yo, how was your flight? And he just, <laughs> he wasn't there. It was, it was empty. It was completely empty. Uh, and so I can bring that report back that the scriptures is true, that he did rise. And we'll be celebrating that next month. Let's see what else we got. Uh, this is a picture. I know it just looks like a bunch of rocks, um, but this is this is a picture of where Matthew 16 would have taken place. This is uh, what's known as Caesarea Philippi. And that little hole you see inside the rock, Greek uh, philosophers in that time, in ancient time, would have said that that's literally the gates of hell. So that is where everyone that's going into hell would march through that rock. In Matthew 16, you'll notice that Jesus is with the boys. And what does he say? He says, who do men say I am? And they said, some say you're a prophet, some say you're John the Baptist. And then he said, who do you say I am? And remember what they said. They said, Peter says, I, I know who you are. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember Jesus' response? Jesus responded and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. And then he went so far as he said, on Pete, not on Peter, but on Peter's words, on this rock, I'll build my church. That is where Jesus would have said that. The interesting thing about that is two things. First, he said, I'm building my church right on the place that Greek philosophers say that is the gates of hell. And remember, he even said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The second thing is you really can't see it here. I wish I could climb up there and, and expand it and show you. But within this rock, there was six places to the right of that big hole. There were six places where uh, there was engraved carvings, shelves, if you will, that they would have put all these other gods, it's about six of them, and they would have put, one of them was the god of nymph, which, they, which is where we get our word uh, uh, nymphomania. So you can imagine what their celebrations look like. But they would have placed these gods on these shelves. And the interesting thing is, 2,000 years ago, I'm sitting looking at empty shelves, yet Jesus says, I'm building my church. First of all, I'm building my church in the place that you guys are worshiping these false gods, and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, man, he reached, the gospel reached me all the way across the world. These shelves are empty, but yet Christ's church is still prevailing. And make no mistake about it, us being in this room gathered as a local body is only because the proclamation that Jesus made while he sat on this mountain is true. I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What else do we got? All right, y'all know y'all pastors a little, I'm a little reckless. <laughs> Okay, I, 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 I can, you know, I can tend to be a little immature. This is me jumping into the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I was not walking on that water. Jesus walked on it, uh, but I quickly sunk and went right under. Let's go to the next one. I'm showing too much flesh in this. I got my chest all out, my hair all out and stuff. Let's go to the next picture. Got to move that quick. Uh, this is a picture of, of Peter's house, and uh, you, you really, you just see the walls here, so you really can't get a good understanding of what Peter's house is, but if you look at you remember the story with the four friends and they ripped the roof off the house and they let the paralytic down? This is where they would have done that. Now, above this is a, a elevated Catholic church because the Catholic church believes that Peter was the first pope. And so uh, they built a church on top of this. But this is Peter's house. And this is, I mean, I sat and did Bible study at Peter's house. It is just mind blowing when you consider it. Speaking of Peter, why don't you guys go ahead and grab those Bibles and meet me in First Peter. Did y'all see that segue into Peter? I planned that. 
All right, meet me in 1 Peter. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter and excited to be back in it. We've been off a few weeks. Uh, As you guys are turning there, let let me just reiterate what Gabe mentioned during our time, which is is, uh, during his time of announcement, which is the Rikers Island event or documentary screening uh, is going to be a is going to be an eye opener for you. So if you guys do not have to leave and do not have to rush out, I'm going to ask that you guys would stay. We're going to try to do it immediately following and uh, give a little bit of time for people to, to clear out if you if you're not if you don't want to stay or people to come if they are coming. Um, but if you don't have to run out, listen, we're trying to bring awareness to mass incarceration. And so today is in a list of what we can do. This is more of an awareness so if you guys could um, if you guys could be here, that would be a great deal. And the second thing I just wanted to mention quickly is, listen, I really want you guys here for anniversary in a couple of weeks. Uh, first of all, it is a big deal that we have survived for a year straight. Uh, that is nothing but the Lord. Even even amen. You can give God praise for that. Again, it's, it's places like Caesarea Philippi where Jesus said, I will build my church. I think one of the things we've tried to do is be submissive to the fact that Jesus says, I will build my church. That means he's not building our church. He's not building Epiphany Church and he's not we're not building his church. Jesus makes the claim that it's my church and I'm building it. And so we get to celebrate one year of what Jesus has been building. So if you guys could be here, one of my mentors, Dr. Paul Tripp, will be preaching for us. Listen, we are expecting an overflow. So I if you stroll in at 11.15 on, uh, on Anniversary Sunday, first of all, you'll miss the breakfast. But second of all, it will, uh, it will be a little bit tighter than normal. So if you guys could do two things, bring somebody with you so that we can celebrate. And the second thing is try to get here on time. All right. First Peter, we, um, we've made a commitment to go through all of the book of First Peter. One, one of the things we like to do here at the church is we, we don't really like to do just topical sermons. Uh, we do that sometimes. That's when we're in between books. Uh, but the main the main thrust of our church is going through a book of the Bible. So we have made a commitment to go through all of first Peter. It's five chapters of first Peter. We are only in uh, the first chapter, first couple of verses. We started a couple of weeks ago with the introduction, which was verses one and two. Just trying to define who is the author of first Peter. It is Peter. We defined that. But also. Who is the audience in which Peter is writing to? We define that Peter is writing to the elect exiles, elect meaning the chosen, exiles meaning they're not home, they're not in heaven yet, they're here on earth, and so they are chosen, but they are still displaced. And uh, in many ways, what you'll find is that this week's sermon really is a piggyback off of what Pastor Earn preached last week. I didn't call Pastor Ernie and tell him to preach, this too will pass. I think he preached that. Uh, well, I know he preached it. I listened to a sermon on the flight back home. Um, I didn't tell him what to preach, and he didn't know what I was preaching, but the Lord uh, just keeps, it's amazing how he does this, how he weaves the word of God together so that it can get a, give a clear picture for us. And one of the things, you know, I have noticed throughout my spiritual journey is whenever the Lord gets redundant with something, he's normally trying to get our attention. So I I don't know, you know, what you're going through. I don't know what trial, which is what we're going to be talking about today, trials. Um, I don't know what you came in here with. Maybe you're not going through anything. I can promise you if you're not, you're probably on your way into something um, because the the Christian life is never coasting. It's always ups and downs to it. And that's how the Lord has wired it. And so, you know, last week, we're really just building on what you guys heard last week from Pastor Earn. 
Um, but yeah, so first one and two, we were in, and then we did three through five. Really, Peter just pushing us towards our future expectation. He said, we have a living hope, talking about the gospel and trying to secure us, even though the people he's writing to are under intense persecution. He did not start the letter of first Peter by jumping right in on their persecution. He started the letter by securing them in their future hope, their ending, their expectation, which is salvation, which is being home with the Lord in heaven. And so today he's finally, finally going to deal with a very persistent problem that they have been having, and that is hardship and suffering. And so if you're in here and you're dealing with that now, or you're about to go into that, or you just came out of that, this should be a warm blanket to you. And so I need you to make no mistake about it. As we're reading this, it's easy to read. We'll be in verses six and seven. It's easy to read this and think to ourselves, they weren't under that much persecution. They, you know, we think persecution is getting your lights cut off and, you know, not having any money for the stuff. That, that's not persecution. That's probably bad financial stewardship. But they're under intense persecution by the Roman emperor Nero. I mean, he's literally, this is genocidal persecution. He's literally trying to wipe out all of Christianity. And so what Peter is doing is he's trying to comfort some deeply, deeply persecuted people. And we'll see how persecuted they are as we walk through our time together today. Pick me up in verse number six. Verse number six, it says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Let me say that again. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise, the glory, and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to preach today from the topic, just those two verses. I want to preach from the topic, understanding trials. Understanding trials. Let us pray. Lord, uh, we slow ourselves down. We are, we're back at it again, back in your word, trying to feed off of your word and trying to grab the nutrients that are found in your word. We believe that your word is infallible. We believe that your word is perfect and it is without error. So, Father, we want to apply what it is that you are going to speak to us today. And, Father, as we draw near to your word, we, re- we do so by realizing that it is our only hope. Friends, counsel does not compare to the word of God. Our horoscope does not pr- compare to the word of God. What people tell us we should do does not compare to the direction that the word of God gives us. Why? Because your word tells us that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so, Father, today, would you meet us in your text? And and those that are walking in here with hardship, with suffering, with trials, maybe it's a loss of a loved one. Maybe it's an illness that they're personally dealing with or an illness of a friend. Maybe it's the betrayal of a friend, betrayal of a spouse. Whatever we're walking in here with, would you help us to understand how you view our trials today, how you view our hardship? And may we walk out of here with a little bit more expectation. Father, I do not want to promise that trials will go away. It's not my, that's not my goal today. Do not want to promise. In fact, I, I, I actually pray that you turn it up. You turn it up today that we would be able to walk out and be purified. The scripture says it's gold that's tested in fire. Father, would you meet us today in your word? It's in Christ's name we give glory. Amen. There is a very dangerous and unhealthy theology 
uh, that the Western church has really, I mean, really capitalized on. And that is called the prosperity gospel. Has anybody in here ever heard of the prosperity gospel? There's few things that I'll say I hate, but the prosperity gospel is one of those things. The prosperity gospel will literally say that you get Jesus plus stuff, that God wants you rich and that God wants you healthy and that God does not want you to go through, through anything. He doesn't want you to go through any hardship. And if you're going through hardship, it's because you just don't have enough faith. When I tell you that that sounds good, that will pack a church. But what that will not do is be consistent with the 66 books that we call the Bible. The Bible does not promote that you will not go through. In fact, John 16 verse 33 says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 12 says, all of those who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Please note both of those absolute statements. It does not say those that want to live a godly life in Jesus Christ might be persecuted. It doesn't say there's a possibility of persecution. The scripture said in 2 Timothy, those that want to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. We should expect persecution. You should expect suffering. You should expect trials. Unfortunately, because we're so cultured here, we soon as we get in something that's rough, we want to get out. We pray to get out, but we never pray, Lord, what are you doing? What are you trying to burn in my heart? What are you doing with this season of trial? So those that want to live a godly life in Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted. And real faith in Jesus often brings trials. It just does. Like the moment you, tr- it seems like the moment you trust in Jesus, that's the moment that Jesus starts to turn up the trials in your life. Like, I don't know about you, but you know, you ever went to one of those churches that like, if you, you want to end suffering and you want to end pain, you need to trust Jesus, come down to the altar and the altar is packed. Listen, that's not reality. Reality is you trust Jesus and you still go through. Reality is you trust Jesus and oftentimes you go through and it's worse than you would have went through if you weren't a believer. Jesus often turns up the fire. The Puritan commentator, Matthew Henry, he, uh, he was robbed one day and he later journaled reminders to himself to be thankful in the midst of being robbed. And he said four things. He said, he says, I should be thankful because I was never robbed before. And he says, secondly, I should be thankful because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Thirdly, he says, I should be thankful because although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, I should be thankful because it was I who robbed and not I who robbed. What you see here is what he's saying is, thank God that even though I was robbed, I wasn't brought to the place that I would be the one that needed to rob somebody else. And that is what Peter is pushing to us today. He's showing us the attitude toward our trials. There is something to be thankful for and have joy even in the midst of hardship. Uh Uh-uh, Pastor, you can't tell me that I should have joy in the midst of hardship. Well, I'm not telling you you should have joy in the midst of hardship. Peter is telling us that we should have joy in the midst of hardship. And what you'll see within these two little verses that I read today, verse 6 and 7, there's five essential important truths that I want to pull out about our trials. Five things. If you're writing, you can write these down and I'm going to say them quickly and then we'll work through each one of them. Five things that I'm going to pull out from these two verses. Number one, I'm going to pull out the proper response to our trial. 
Peter is going to show us the proper response. Second thing he's going to show us is the limited duration of our trials. The third thing he'll, he'll show us is the spiritual necessity of our trials. Fourth, he's going to show us the emotional reality of our trials. And lastly, the fifth thing is he's going to show us the intended result of our trial. First, let's lift up the proper response to our trial. Meet me back in verse number six. It says this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Let me lift up the first four words to show you the proper response to trials. In this you rejoice. Wait a second. Peter is saying in the midst of hardship, I should rejoice. What Peter is showing us after he secured us in the gospel in the preceding verses, verses three through five. Now in verse six, he says, in this you rejoice. In the midst of hardship, you should rejoice. And genuine faith always is authenticated by our response to trials. See, I, I, was, I was taught growing up that, not, my, not by my parents, but by some of the churches I went to, I was taught that faith eliminates trials. When the reality is, faith doesn't eliminate trials. Trials authenticate faith. Trials show us what real faith is. So Peter shows us this morning. In this, you rejoice. I need you to note that Peter uses the word rejoice and grieved in the same sentence. In the same sentence. It's not even like he breaks this up and says in verse 7 talks about grieving. No, in verse 6, he talks about rejoicing. And at the end of verse 6, he talks about grieving. This is powerful for us. This doesn't make sense to us. Why would Peter tell us in the midst of hardship to rejoice? Why would he do that? Because the believer... Only the believer can smile when he should be crying. Only the believer can dance when he should be depressed. In fact, the very word rejoiced here means much leaping or dancing in the original language, in the Greek language. It means much leaping. And so what Peter is saying is, listen, in the midst of hardship, you should rejoice. And so Peter is writing this to a persecuted people. Again, under intense genocidal persecution, He's writing to them the fact that they should be rejoicing. Notice that Peter doesn't command them to rejoice. He is simply saying what they already are doing. He's not telling them, hey, you need to rejoice. He's saying in what I said in verses three through five, you should rejoice. That is what Peter is pulling out for us this morning. And so it's like no circumstances should be able to take your joy. Notice that Peter doesn't say in this you're happy. There is a difference between being happy and having joy because happiness, happiness is fleeting. Happiness is, is rooted in something happening or an event. And so I can be happy that I got a new car. I can be happy that I got a new house. I can be happy that I got a new job. But what happens when the house, I get evicted from the house? What happens when I lose the job? What happens when the car gets repossessed? That is why we bake on joy, because I love what Shirley Caesar says in one of her songs. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it and the world cannot take it away because real joy is rooted in the goodness and the faithfulness of a sovereign God. And because he's good and he's faithful, that never changes, no matter what the circumstance is. Does not change us. Philippians four verse four says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We can bank on joy. You cannot bank on happiness. 
or we can bank on on joy. What Peter does here in telling them to rejoice in the midst of hardship and persecution is Peter is affirming the fact that you get to choose your response. Like we don't get to choose what we go through. You don't get to choose your trial because if you chose your trial, you wouldn't choose it. So we don't get to choose what we go through, but all of us in this room get to choose what our response is. So I can choose to pray for the one that's putting a Facebook post out on me. I can, I can choose to, to love the person that hates me. I can choose to love the boss that is getting on my nerves. The, the one that I know is ready to fire me. I can choose to lovingly, to lovingly respond to that person in love. I, that's what I love about Christianity is although we are persecuted people and they were persecuted people, they still couldn't rob their joy. And, and let me just tell you for those who have, have what you call haters, people that just don't like you, the greatest way to get someone that doesn't like you mad is to maintain your joy. Like they want you to lose your joy. They want you to be upset. But the greatest way to just, I mean, heap burning coals over their head is what Proverbs says. The greatest way to do that is to love them in spite of it and to show that you still have joy. Proverbs 25, which I just quoted, says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, to drink for you will heap burning coals over his head. You and I in this room do not have the ability to choose the hardship, but we certainly have the ability to choose what our response is to the hardship. Now, you know what we always choose, right? We choose to complain. We choose to pray, Lord, get me out of this. But later on in this verse, we're going to see that there's even purpose in the trial. There's purpose in the hardship. And so Peter tells them, listen, in this you rejoice. The question you should be asking is, in what do I rejoice? Well, let me read it for you. This is what we went over the last time we were together. It says in verse number three, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you who by God's power are being guarded. Listen to this through faith for salvation again for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then Peter says in this you rejoice. So what Peter just did was Peter simply said, listen, here's the gospel. Here's the ending. Here's what your salvation looks like. Rejoice in that in the midst of hardship. See, if you're having a hard time in the midst of hardship, finding a way to conjure up some joy, we need to look no further than the fact that Jesus Christ died on your behalf. It's the gospel that we get to rejoice in. This is why non-believers, like, I, that's why the scripture says, there's a scripture that says, we don't mourn as those mourn that have no hope. We have a hope, and that is the gospel. And because of the gospel, we in this room can endure hardship and can endure trials with joy. Listen to me. If you show me a joyless Christian, I'm going to show you a Christian that moved past the gospel. But the gospel brings us joy, even in the midst of hardship. Now, Peter is going to shift our focus now. Peter's going to shift our focus from our response, which is joy, now to the limited duration of your trial. How do I know that? Look at verse six again. He says, in this you rejoice. Watch these two time references here. Though now 
for a little while. Did you, did you pick up the two time references that he just said? He said now, but he also said and a little while. Two time references. What this shows us is the limited duration of our trials. And really, the word now stands in great contradiction to verses three through five. Remember, I just read about the ending, what the ending is going to look like, their future hope, their living hope, their salvation. But right now, they're in persecution. Right now, they're in hardship. And what you're seeing is Peter is trying to show them the ending so that it can impact their go through now. When my youngest son brings home his math work, there, there's, a, there's a problem, one problem, a math problem that he has to do, and he has one week to do it. It's called the problem of the week, the math problem of the week. And sometimes, I kid you not, sometimes the math problem of the week is so difficult to figure out. I don't know how in the world they expect these kids to figure out some of the math stuff, because it's not like, it's not just a word problem. It's not just like a math equation. It's like all of this stuff that you got to work out. Like it's one problem, but his whole page is filled with working out this problem to get one little answer. And so what sometimes what happens with this math problem is everybody in our house have to contribute. We're probably we're like, well, he can't figure this out. So we got all we got to make this a community effort. And so my wife will go on one side of the room. I'll go on the other side. My oldest son will get involved and he'll get on the other side. My youngest son, he usually just sits there and like they'll figure it out. But either, but either way, we are at some point it becomes like a competition. Let's see who can figure this thing out. But when we've exhausted all avenues of figuring out and solving this problem, we do what everybody else in this room would do. We Google the answer. You Google the answer. Everything, Google has everything. So we put in the math problem and it gives us the answer. But my son cannot take that answer and put that on the paper and say, I'm done. Number one, he's not going to know how to do the problem when he gets to school. But number two, in the top of the paper, it says, show your work. So you can't just put the answer. But one of the things that happens when we Google the answer is it gives us the ending so that we know how to work out the problem. So we're working it out with a little bit more confidence because we know what the ending is. Hear me, what Peter is saying here is talking about their present trials by using the word now and the preceding verses pointing to them to the gospel is it's almost like he Googled the answer and said, this is what the ending is. The ending is your salvation right now. You can go through. See, when you know you have a secure relationship with Jesus and that you will one day spend eternity with him, you'll be able to go through a little bit better now. The reason we don't go through well is because we have a hard time understanding the ending. But Peter says, listen, you have joy. Now, but now, but now is it the only word? That's not the only time reference he uses in verse six. Look at what else he says. In this you rejoice, though now, circle this, for a little while. Peter shows us the limited duration of our trials. He defines it as for a little while. That last always. Our trials have a limited duration. Your trial has an expiration date. You will not go through always. So Peter shows us, listen, be encouraged because you're not going to go through. When I was on the plane coming from Israel and I listened to Pastor Ern's sermon last week, by the way, y'all let him call me the pretty pastor. I, I, have, I, don't, I don't get how y'all going to, next time he does that, y'all got to boo him. I'm, no, don't do that. No, do that. Boo him. Don't let him call me the pretty pastor. That's not cool. 
But anyway, I'm, I'm on the flight and I'm listening to Pastor Ern. I, you know, I had to fast forward through some of his shenanigans, but I, I finally listened to it. And, and as I'm listening to Pastor Ern, he started to talk about uh, the, the layover, the difference between the layover and how the layover on a flight isn't your destination, which made a lot of sense to me because let me tell you all something about layovers. I hate layovers. I do not understand layovers. I do not get layovers. I hate layovers. I wish every flight was a straight through flight. In fact, so my flight was straight through from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem to, uh, to JFK. But one of my friends that I met there, his flight was going to Miami, but he had to stop in Germany. And it wasn't like he enjoyed Germany. He had to stop and do a layover. But one of the things that you need to understand about layovers, and the reason I'm saying a layover is because that's what your trial is based on what Peter is saying. It's a little while. It's a layover. One of the things you have to understand about layovers is layovers are important for your final destination. The reason they're important for your final destination is because a layover gives the opportunity for people that aren't supposed to go to your destination time to get off the plane. See, but what we do is we want to get stuck in a layover because we're holding on to people saying, no, keep your seatbelt on. No, they need to get their bags and get off because they're not supposed to go where you're going. Peter says, listen, your trial is for a little while. Your trial is just a layover. As much as you hate layovers, yes, it gives the, t- the time for the plane to be refilled, but it gives time for people that are not supposed to be on your destination time to get off. Stop holding on to people that shouldn't be going where you're going. Let them get on off the plane. And so Peter says here, listen, it's for a little while. There's something else important about this little while that I need to point out. Because if we just read for a little while and don't understand what Peter's talking about, what we'll do is we'll reduce the scriptures to say, my little while is only a couple weeks. Or we'll say, my little while is only in this, you know, only in this season. I'm, my new season is coming. Hear me. Peter is not saying that your little while is over in this lifetime. I know that's hard. And, you know, I know you're used to the person saying, listen, you're going to come out of this. You might not come out of it. Can I just be honest with you? How do I know that? Because Peter's readers would not have come out of it. Many of his readers would have died under the under the the ruling of, of the Roman Empire. They would have died in the midst of hardship. Yet Peter writes for a little while. In fact, Peter himself, after writing this letter, three years later, he himself would die. And he didn't die an old man warm in his bed. History shows us that he was crucified upside down. This is Peter we're talking about. But yet Peter writes this letter knowing he's going to die. How do I know? Because Jesus prophesied to him that he was going to die said, you're going to stretch out your hands. And so what you see here, which is accurate to him being crucified. Anyway, you, you have to understand what Peter is saying. He's saying the little while, yes, it's a limited duration, but the little while does not mean that you, you're going to breeze through this life. You're going to have a season of hardship and then you're going to come out of the hardship and then you'll be fine. Listen, little while, the only way we can understand a little while is if we put our trials in perspective in terms of eternity. So in other words, yeah, you're going through now and you, I can't promise that you'll come out of your trial. But what I can promise you is even if you go through for the rest of your life compared to eternity, it's a little while compared to eternity. It is short. I want to try to make this a little bit more plain today with an illustration. Let's say this rope 
Let's see if I can stretch it a little bit. Let's say this rope, yes, it goes to the end of that organ, but let's just say for illustration's sake that this rope goes on and on and on. There's, there's no stop to this rope. This rope is eternity. This rope here represents eternity. It never stops. And this red part of the rope represents your life. I Googled 2016, the average life expectancy in 2016 was 70 years. Average life. And that's, I mean, that's gracious. You know how many teenagers die? You know how many infants die? You know how many children die? Yet, let's just say you get 70 years or more. Do you realize this is your life? How short this is compared to eternity? But what we do is we get here and we're like, oh, man, this hardship. If I can just get a little bit more money, I can get here. Look how short this is compared to all of this. And what Peter is saying is this is a little while. When you look at the bigger scheme of things, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 puts it this way. It, it, it illustrates this a little bit more. It says this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. This momentary affliction right here, I'm having some relationship issues. This momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of eternity of glory. And so we get stressed out over this when really this impacts all of this. Go through well here because at the end of your life, you will spend eternity with God. And can I, tell, can I promise you something about heaven? There will be no broke people in heaven. You won't have bills in heaven. You won't, be, you won't have debt in heaven. You won't have relationship issues in heaven. You will not be sick in heaven. So 70 years of enduring it. And here's the crazy thing. Most of you in here will not suffer all of your life. But some of, the, some of Peter's readers did. But some of you in this room will not suffer always. But yet we get stressed out over this small life. When the reality is there is a eternity that is awaiting us. So I simply want to put it this way. You might go through forever. Like I can't promise that you're going to come out. You, that lonely season of singleness may not be a season. It may be a lifetime. Like you may never get married. I'm, I'm, I know that's like, uh-uh. He liked my pictures three times this week on Facebook. Like I'm going to get married. Re reality is you may suffer always that I'm not saying you're suffering because you're single, but but the reality is you may have a hardship always that financial breakthrough. My season is coming. You may be broke all your life. Like, can we be honest in here? Because what we do is we want to romanticize this thing as though life is supposed to be cushy. No, it's supposed to be hard. And we're going to see why it's supposed to be hard based on verse number six. And so you, you may not, that sickness that you have, that you've been diagnosed with, and you're waiting to be healed, I, pr I pray for your healing. I'm required as your pastor to pray for your healing. But the reality is, that don't mean God's going to heal you. You may, you may have to endure sickness forever. When I say forever, for the rest of your life. But in eternity, when you, when you think about eternity, Peter is, is, is consistent right here by saying, listen, that hardship, I know it's now and it's for a little while, but it's going to stop one day. And when it stops, you will spend 
eternity with the Lord. Now Peter's going to shift us. He showed us our response, rejoice in trials. He showed us the limited duration of your trials. It's now and it's for a little while. Now Peter is going to show us the spiritual necessity of your trial. Now this is important for us because we don't like to, we don't like to think that our trials have purpose. We don't like to think that I'm supposed to be going through right now. Look at what Peter says. Verse number six. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. Please circle these two words. If necessary. Did you see what Peter said? Let's put that scripture up on the screen. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary. So what Peter is showing us here is the providential occasion on which your trials come into your life. Trials come into your life when it's necessary. When God spiritually deems that it's necessary for you to go through, he puts you through. Like the Trinity in heaven is not confused that you're going through. He's not caught off guard. God is not caught off guard that you're going through. He's not blaming the Holy Spirit Saying, Spirit, you're supposed to be there. What happened? He's not looking at Jesus saying, you were supposed to die for that. No, they're not surprised. Here it is. It's planned. It's planned for you to go through. Scripture just said, if necessary. I love what the King James Version says. It says, if need be. If there's a need for you to go through, you will go through. Consider what Peter is saying here, though. He's saying that the season of pain that you're going through is necessary. At the expense of sounding cliches, your pain actually has purpose and it's good for you. But we don't like to look at our trials and hardship as a goal. Listen, you getting laid off may be a blessing. Him not texting you back may be a blessing. We don't like to look at it like this. It might be a good thing that you're having financial struggles. It might be a good thing that you can't get it together financially. Now, keep striving. I'm not saying stay home and be like, oh, I'm done. It's a good thing. If necessary, Lord. That's not what I'm saying. Like, get up and get a job. Get out and do some work. But the reality is you, you may have, you may be fine. Like, you may be broke for the rest of your life. Like, I, I'm, I mean, I don't know how else to put. I know this, this is one of those space maker sermons. People going to go out and be like, uh-uh, he said I'm going to be broke. I ain't ever going back to that church again. <laughs> I'm not pronouncing this. I'm not prophesying it, but I am trying to say some of you, some of you are broke because it's a blessing for you because you're unwise with money. He knows if he gives you a lot, you'll forsake him. He knows that. And so he says, "Mm -mm, paycheck to paycheck. (laughs) I can't trust him with too much. I give him too much. They can be all over the place. So just drop a little bit here, drop a little bit there. That's how that some of us, It's designed for us to go through life like that. But we don't ever consider that. All of us in this room are on our grind, trying to make it. But the reality is, listen, if necessary, it might be necessary. And so trials come into our life if and when God deems it to be necessary. They're strategic and they're valuable. We never look at it like that. But I challenge you today to go out and the next time, unless you're in the midst of hardship now, the next time hardship hits, you should either say, Lord, show me what it is that you're trying to do in my heart through this trial. And the second thing is, if it's not good for me to come out of it, keep it. Keep me in it. Turn it up. And I'm going to show you why it's important that he turns it up on us. And so, listen, he's not confused. It's planned. 
It's calculated. He already worked this in. And he worked it in before you were even born. He worked it in from the foundations of the world. Romans 8.28 puts it this way. All things work together for the good for those who were called according to his purpose. If it's necessary. Now, I'm not trying to downplay your hardship. It, like Some of you may be going through some really hard stuff. And I don't want to downplay that. Like if you're dealing with the loss of a loved one, that, that hurts. The scripture even affirms that because Peter now lays on us the painful reality of your trial. Let's keep going. Verse six. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various uh, trials. Let me lift up that one word grieved. That means pain or sorrow. What Peter is showing us here is that your trials and your hardship actually does hurt. Like, I, I, I hate those super spiritual Christians that, you know, you ask them, how you doing? And they're like, man, I'm blessed and highly favored. The Lord is good. And when the reality is you're going through. Let's be honest with our growth through. The scripture just said that you've been grieved. Ephesians talks about how we shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit. How is it that the Holy Spirit can be honest and say, I'm grieving, yet we in here want to put on our church face. We don't want to act like we're grieving. We don't want to act like we're hurting. Listen, there's nothing spiritual about acting like it doesn't hurt. There's nothing overcoming about acting like the pain isn't stinging you right now. Can you imagine if the woman with the issue of blood, the Bible says she had an issue of blood for 12 years. Can you imagine if Jesus came to her and said, what can I do for you? And she says, nothing, I'm good. Can you imagine that? But no, she got healed because she was honest. I went to physician after physician. I don't spend all my money. I'm hurt. Help. And so you in this room, listen, don't hide that it, that it hurts. Scripture just says grieved. So why we push DNA partners here? You need somebody. You need a space that you can go and say, I'm broken. I'm hurting. That's why we push small groups. You need a space that you can go and say, this is what I'm dealing with and I'm hurt. And don't try the other person that hears that. Don't try to fix the other person. Because there's purpose in what they're going through. Pray for them. Give some support. But don't try to pull them out. Because the reality is, it's planned for them. And so he says here, they've been grieved. But he, he, he doesn't just say that they're grieved. He says that they're grieved. Look back at the verse. He says that they're grieved with various trials. This is important for us. This means that there's not just one type of grief that they're going through, not one trial that they're going through, but various trials. You know, what, what we often do is we think that, and th again, this goes back to the, to the whack prosperity gospel. It goes back to that because what that says is, as long as I got enough faith, I can get out of this thing. It won't hurt my trials. I'll be able to overcome my trials when the reality is, listen, Faith doesn't make you overcome trials. It helps through the process, but it don't mean you're going to overcome trials. In fact, I was reading uh, Hebrews chapter 11 last week for one of my devotionals, and I was going through Hebrews 11, and, and I quickly want to read it to you, not all of it. I highlighted some verses that stuck out to me because, so Hebrews 11 is known as the Hall of Faith. In fact, if you look at the, the, the subscription above Hebrews 11, it says, by faith. And so all of Hebrews 11 is talking about faith. And what we think is that when you have faith, everything, like you overcome everything. And the reality is Hebrews 11 does start out that way. Look at what it says. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And it says in verse number 21, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed his sons. That sounds great. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus. That sounds great. How about 23? By faith, Moses was born and was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and that, he was, that they were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse number 12, uh, 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called Pharaoh's son. How about this one? By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. By faith, the walls of Jericho came down when they encircled it seven times over and over again. In the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11, we see that faith helped them to overcome. Have you ever read the end of chapter 11? The end of chapter 11 doesn't start out. It starts out great, but it doesn't end well. Look what the end of it says. By faith, some were tortured. By faith, others suffered mocking and flogging. By faith, some were stoned. Listen, by faith, some were sawn in two. So we're talking about persecuted people. It's easy for us to say, listen, my faith is going to help me to overcome this, this various trial when the reality is no. Your faith may not help you to overcome it. Your faith may turn it on. Some of you in here don't need the crossing of the Red Sea. Some of you need, in here need to be sawn in two. And that's what, that's what the writer of Hebrews was saying. That's what Peter is saying. Peter's saying, listen, I, I know you're going through not just the trial, but you're going through various trials. The word various here, the New Testament was written in a language called Greek. And, and the, the word that he uses for various is an interesting one. The word he uses in the original language is poikilos. See, I went to Israel. I feel like I can say some Greek words. <laughs> the word he uses is poikilos. And what that literally means is it means multicolored or multifaceted. It's the, it's the word that you would use to des describe we the weaving together of a bunch of different colorful threads to make one garment. That's what he means when he says various. But the interesting thing about him using various trials in chapter one, is that in chapter four, verse 10, he talks about God's poikilos grace. In other words, God's various grace. So what you can conclude from the fact that Peter said that you have various trials in the first chapter, and then towards the end of the book in chapter four, he says, but God has various grace. That is saying that everything you're going through, no matter how multicolored it is, no matter how various the trials are, God has grace for everything that you're going through. No matter what the trial is, God is saying, listen, I have grace for that. In fact, he ends the, I'm going too far. He ends in chapter five by saying that he's the God of all grace. And so yes, you're going through, not just going through one thing, but you're going through various trials. But let me connect the dots for you. God has various grace for you. Poikilos. So, so very important. And so what does that mean? That means that God has grace to help you break that habit. God has grace to help you with healing. God has grace to help you restore your marriage. God has various grace for the various things that you're going through. Now, in verse number six, what we saw was Peter really stating that the believer is going through various trials. Now, in verse number seven, he's going to define why we're going through various trials. I only have a short amount of time together left here, and I haven't preached to y'all in two weeks, so I feel like I need to get it all out. Verse number six, you're going through various trials. Verse number seven, here's why you're going through the trials. 
Let's pick me, pick me back up in verse number seven. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, your trial really is two things is happening. We'll get to the second one. The first one is he's testing your faith. You cannot test faith to see if it's real, genuine faith when everything's going well. Peter is suggesting that the only way you can see if faith is genuine is if you go through. This is why the trial is necessary. Your trial is necessary because you cannot distinguish between between professed faith and a possession of faith. So you can profess faith and not really have it. But Peter is saying, we can see how much genuine your faith is, how genuine your faith is by putting a trial in front of you. So Peter is like, listen, the trial is important. It's necessary. Why? Because it's testing your faith. It's seeing how deep the roots of your faith goes. We used to own a house. My wife and I used to own a house in the outskirts of Philadelphia. And there was a a large tree that was, it, it almost looked like it was connected to the house. It had this little lean on it. And I was often worried that when storms ha- happened or when the wind would blow really hard, I was worried that the tree would fall and literally rip out a piece of the house because it was like attached to the house. And so one time I had a landscaper come over and I said, man, how much would it cost to, to cut this tree down? And it was a, a cherry tree. So it was it was nice. It like it used to, you know, it would blossom and we'd be able to eat the fruit from it. But I, I wanted to cut it down because I was worried that it was going to pull a piece of the house apart, literally worried. And he looked at me and said, you're worried that that's, gonna, that's not going to fall. You don't need to cut that down. I said, well, how, do you, how can you be sure? He said, let me show you. And he took me around almost the side of the house and started to dig up and show me how deep the roots went. And, and the roots went so deep that at one point it wrapped around a water pipe under the ground. And so what Peter is showing us is that that's the type of faith you have to have. And it's only tested when the wind blows. And so when this wind was blowing, I'm worried. I'm seeing the tree like shaking, but that tree ain't going nowhere because the roots were deep. That is what the tested genuineness of your faith is, that your faith should go so deep that no matter how the wind blows, yes, you may bend, but you're not going to fall. You're not going to fall because your faith is being tested in the deepness of your faith. The the problem with us is we don't want to go through. Therefore, we don't want our faith to be tested. God, you shouldn't test my faith. I said, I believe. (laughs) Reality is, no, you should be tested. Warren Worsby said it well. He said, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. We must have our test, our, our faith tested. And so, yes, in the beginning part of verse number seven, he says that trials have a unique way of proving your faith. But now he's going to show us that trials also have a unique way of purifying your faith. Look back at the verse. We're almost done here. Verse number seven. Verse number seven says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, that's proven your faith. Now watch watch the purifying. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. What Peter is saying is that your faith is being tested by fire. So when a miner in, in ancient times, a miner would find gold. What he would do with the gold is he'd take the gold, he'd, he'd start a fire and he'd put a big pot on the fire and he'd fill the pot with water. This is what a miner would do. Then he'd take the gold and he'd put it inside the water. And as the water would boil and heat up, the impurity and the dirt from the gold would rise to the top of the water. The miner would then take a scooper and scoop off the top. 
He'd scoop off the dirt. He'd scoop off the impurities. And he knew when the gold, the gold was pure and when it was clean, when he would look inside the pot and see his reflection. If he looked in the pot and saw more dirt, he had to continue to let it boil and burn and scoop some more off. And then he'd look and wait until he sees his reflection. And when he saw his reflection, he'd know the impurities and the dirt was all removed from the gold. And on judgment day, that is exactly what's going to happen. On judgment day, you and I will stand before the Lord after having the fire turned up on you. This is why I said it's important having the fire turned up on you. God will let you in, not if he sees dirt on the top of the pot, but when he looks in and sees the reflection of his son, Jesus Christ. When he sees the reflection of Jesus Christ, he knows that you're pure and that you can make it on in. And so that is what Peter would have written Having this in mind of what a miner does when he takes gold. That's why Peter says precious. Look at what he said here. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. He's talking about what a miner would do with fire. And this is important for us. That is why I said in the beginning of this sermon, if you're going through a hardship, instead of praying, get out. You should be praying, God, turn it up. The reason I say that is because nothing else shows Christ's likeness like the fire being turned up on you. When he looks in, he wants to see the reflection of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, if he wants to see the reflection of Jesus Christ, Lord, I don't want to stand before you with dirt and impurity on me. Burn me up. Put me through the fire. Test me so that I can come out and look more like Jesus Christ. Let's end this here. Verse number seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise, the glory, and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's talking about the second coming. But when he talks about the praise, the glory, and the honor, he is not talking about something that's going to be subscribed to Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. Yes, we're going to praise Jesus and glorify him and honor him forever. But Peter is saying that the praise, the glory, and the honor is for you after you've been tested. That's what Peter is saying here. He's saying that he isn't saying this is something that you're going to be giving to God. Yes, you'll give that to Christ. But he's saying, listen, this is for you. You will receive a reward. Your reward is the praise, the glory, and the honor Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.15 says this, because what, what happens with us is we'll think that our go through that Jesus is disconnected from us. Like he don't know what I'm going through. He don't know about this pain. Yet Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect who has been tempted just as we are yet without sin. Hear me. Jesus knows that trial. I don't know the trial. You may have never even told anybody else what you're going through. But the reality is Jesus knows the trial because the scriptures just told us that he's able to sympathize, sympathize with our weakness. Because he himself in every respect was tempted just as we are. And in the beauty in Jesus being able to go through and go through well is that Jesus went through and he didn't have to. He was perfect. Like if anybody deserves to go through trials, it's you. If anybody deserves to go through trials, it's me. Yet Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, in the midst of being sinless, decided to go through on your behalf. Listen, 
I spent the last 10 days walking up the Via Della Rosa where Jesus would have walked up with his cross. Spent the last 10 days sitting on Golgotha's hill and spending time in an empty tomb. And what I can conclude is that Jesus took what I deserved. I should be in that tomb. You should be in that tomb. But Jesus Christ, in the midst of all of your hardship, Jesus said, I'll take that hardship on and I'll go to a cross and I'll die for my son and my daughter. Let every head be bowed and every eye closed. Epiphany, I cannot promise that you'll come out of your trial and your hardship. I cannot promise that you won't struggle. But what I can promise you is that you're not struggling alone. Jesus is there. He is in the midst of that struggle with you. What I really want to birth here today is a spirit of if necessary. Pray that we would be men and women. I don't even want to do an altar call. I think all of us in this room need to rethink how we understand our trials. Is there purpose in that trial? Father, today, we confess that we do not like trials. We confess that we do not like hardship. Because sometimes hardship feels like you're distant from us. Sometimes pain feels like you don't care. I believe that somebody in this room feels that you just legitimately, you do not hear them and you do not care about their pain. The reality is, Father, you do care. You care so much that you, you love us so much that you gave us trials. You love us so much that you gave us hardship and pain so that we can be tested. But not only that, so that we can be purified. So, Father, help us to wrestle well. Help us to wrestle well here in this short, limited time of our trials. Help us to wrestle well. And we look forward to the day where there'll be no trials. There'll be no hardship, no pain, no sickness. We look forward to the day that we can spend eternity with you apart from trials. But while we're here on this earth, just like Peter's readers, would you help us, Lord, in the midst of our trials? Reality is when we look at the persecution that these believers were under, it pale, our hardship pales in comparison to being sawn in two. Our hardship pales in comparison to being mocked and flogged and beaten just because we say we're Christians. Father, help us today to wrestle and wrestle well for your glory and for your honor. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.